So uh, today, um, we're going to uh, obviously, maybe not obviously, but we're going to be continuing our sermon series on Rediscovering the Father. So if uh, for our guests, you've been, uh, this may be like our fourth or fifth week, going through an understanding of who the Father is. Because a lot of times in Christianity, we'll, we'll view the Son and we will study the Son and sometimes then, therefore, we forget God the Father and some of his attributes. Uh, and so that's part of the, uh, the rationale for the sermon series. And so uh, this week is going to be the Father and then also a groom and his bride. And so this is really uh, what, what's going on here. So let's just, um, let's just pray over the word for a moment. Get myself settled from like announcement time, you know? So Father, we come before you through the Son, empowered by the Holy Ghost. We just ask for your spirit to just fall in this place as it already is with worship, Lord, to just ready our hearts and our minds and our spirits to receive of your word and that we will grow in our understanding of your word and grow in our understanding of you so that, Lord, we can better reflect the Messiah here on planet Earth to man. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> yeah, so there's a little bit of a remembrance I think we, we need to have here. Uh, and it's this. Uh, the Father is sending His Son, the Scriptures say, is a bridegroom to redeem His bride. Like, it's like something like, I think sometimes, like in the midst of paying your Pico bill, we need to be reminded of. For those of you that are out of town, Pico is like our electric bill. Like, the Father in heaven is sending his son as a bride to redeem us. Amen. That's one heck of an end of a story, right? And, you know, I'll be honest, you know, sometimes when I'm going through, like, the daily things of life, you forget that, but he's coming back with fire in his eyes on a horse for his bride. Amen. And that should be something that we get a little uh, excited about. Uh, but, you know, it's also, to be honest, it's a little perplexing. It's a little, a little difficult, uh, particularly for men. Like, I'm a bride. <laughs> what the heck is that all about? Well, we're going to get into all that. Uh, so, let's take a look here. Uh, uh, this paradigm of a father and his groom, or the groom, coming for a bride, uh, is, is, is alluded to in several different places in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, uh, but there is a really, really rich paradigm, is what I'm going to be calling it, in the book of Hosea, all right? One of the minor prophets. And uh, I'm not sure if you've read this book. And if you haven't read this book, I highly suggest that you read it or you reread it because there's so much good theology that's in there that people forget about. Such rich theology. The characters, right? We have Hosea, who is a prophet. <clears throat> we have Gomer. Uh, who is going to be an adulteress or a harlot. And this is what's really bizarre. There's God who tells Hosea to marry Gomer, a prostitute. To be a sign. God is going to tell the prophet Hosea, go and marry this woman. And they're going to have kids as well. Go and marry this woman who is a prostitute, an adulteress, or harlot. <clears throat> it's crazy. We have to understand why, right? But you can see here, right? We have a groom. 
course, we have a bride who is uh, acting as a harlot. <clears throat> so let's open up um, to Hosea chapter 3. It's not a, a Bible uh, book that many people read, so I'm not looking. If you look at the table of contents to find it, it's okay. It's one of those ones that are kind of like hidden in there, right? <clears throat> All right, so uh, Hosea, Hoshea, chapter 3. Let's read a couple verses and figure out what's going on here. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who took to the other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans, essentially like offerings that were made to pagan gods. <clears throat> So I brought her for myself, or I bought her for myself, for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward... The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall feel the Lord, fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now this is a, unfortunately a, a, a section of scripture that largely the church has forgotten to read. It's created a lot of theological problems for some of the mainline churches. Fortunately, we're not one of them. <laughs> What we have here is, look, this whole symbol of Hosea and Gomer and, and Hosea chapter 3 is really a representation of God the Father's love for the nation of Israel. Okay? So when God tells Hosea, go marry a harlot, he says right here, because it's a representation of my love and my covenant with Israel. Even though the woman, Gomer, is a harlot and seeks out other men and has her eyes towards them, just like Israel may be looking to other gods, I am the faithful groom who's here waiting for her return. And it says here beautifully, such a prophetic message, that in the latter days, that they, once again, Israel, will be following the King David, essentially the descendant of King David, right? Jesus. It's all mapped out right here. Now notice, it doesn't say like the Gentiles. It says Israel, which we get to be a part of, of course. But this is a message and a covenant that's made with the nation of Israel. He is there, he's still there as a bridegroom kind of figure that is waiting for her to return, even though she's casting her eyes on the pagan cakes. Now a covenant, right? We've talked about this several months ago. Covenant is a legal binding contract. So even if Israel in part, because not all have, but even if Israel in part has turned away to seek other gods, his end of the covenant remains. Amen? And so this is uh, the problem of some of you that have, have studied you know, the whole concept of replacement theology. It's really because uh, many of the church theologians have not read this and taken this too seriously, which they should. You know, for, for some of the newbies, you know, replacement theology is the concept that the church or the Christian church has replaced Israel in covenant. Uh, it's a false theology. Uh, what it really is is that the church, the Gentiles, are able to step into the covenant that God has made with the descendants of Abraham. Right. And it's a huge difference, uh, and it's manifested in a lot of different ways. 
And we could talk about that in deeper ways if you'd like at another time. Uh, but you, we just saw right here what's happening. And it, it gets even better. Like, you can't make this stuff up. Hosea chapter 6. So two chapters later, let's see what's happening. Verse 1. Come, come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. Right? There's an element of judgment that has been placed. He has torn, meaning God has placed a judgment on the people of Israel, but he will heal us. Well, how is he going to heal us? What will be the reparation? What will be the healing of the disobedience? He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Did you hear this? In three days, he will raise us up. Who was raised up in three days? Jesus. So what we have here is the, the lifting up of the Son of God will be the thing and will be the reparation for the disobedience. And this is, list, this is, this, this is like, I don't know, like 500, 600 years before the coming of Yeshua, the coming of Jesus. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Come on, how many people are out there praying for latter-day rain? A latter-day revival? In context, latter-day rain and latter-day revival is for the nation of Israel. So whether you know it or not theologically, those people that are singing out for the latter rain, you're, you're praying a very specific prayer from Hosea. It's really quite amazing. So in three days, right, we have a representation of the Lord, of Yeshua, Jesus. That's right here. So we uh, read another little section from Hosea, just see how beautiful this gets. Of the paradigm of Hosea having to marry the harlot and it being used as a representation of God marrying his people and being faithful to that witness. Is Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. <clears throat> o Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Skip over to verse... Oh, I'm sorry, no, we keep going. Uh, verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Take away all sin. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. This notion is return unto the Lord, return unto the groom, return unto Hosea in, in many regards, but return to the Father, and this is what you need to do. You need to repent upon your lips. Receive us back again, O God. And he's like, I'm totally in it. I'm just waiting for you to say it. I'm just waiting for your heart to manifest it. And so now we go down to verse 4. I, God, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily, which I believe we were singing out today. And lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Now, for those of you who may not be like the theologians in here, and you're like, what's, this, what's all this kind of stuff he's talking about? It's, it, it, this is what I want you to understand. In the scriptures, God has created a paradigm of understanding that his children are his children, but they are represented as a bride. We are a part of that bride. Some of the nations of the earth have turned away 
and very much people of all different tribes and tongues have also called upon him. But he's coming back like Hosea for a Gomer. He's coming back for his bride. And you better get ready. So what's going on here? Hosea in Hebrew is Hoshia. It simply means salvation or he saves. Okay, cool. Jesus, his original, right, his, his birth name is Yeshua. You can hear Hosea and Yeshua. You can hear the same sound. Yeshua means God is salvation. So this is what's going on. This is what God is creating in his little timepiece here is this. Um, Hosea and Yeshua, Jesus, are linguistically linked. They are theologically linked. The fulfillment of Hosea, Gomer, and Israel is manifested in the New Testament with the coming of the ultimate revelation of eternal salvation through the bridegroom. So what we have here is this picture of Hosea and Gomer is a foreshadowing of an ultimate fulfillment of this bridegroom mentality, which is obviously seen with the coming of the Lord. And so we can see some of these New Testament uh, connections. And you guys, I'm sure, throughout some time in your walk, have read some of these. And so I just want to remind you of some of these New Testament connections to the understanding of, of, of a bridal paradigm before we go deeper into the message. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is the whole thing where the Pharisees are saying, Why is it that John the Baptist's students or disciples fast, but your disciples, Jesus, don't fast? It's like, how can they fast when the bridegroom is here? Once the bridegroom leaves the bride, well, then now it's time to fast and to be in mourning. So we see that, that connection. Uh, another place, and there's so many, but I just want to give a couple others. Uh, chapter or Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 22, says it like this. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The spirit and the bride are both saying, come, for the reunion and relationship between the groom and the bride, between the, between the son and us. Revelation 19, which will be the last one uh, to look at here, verse 6, and it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters. And as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So right, all these scripture verses and the book of Hosea, is showing us and is reminding us, I hope today, for us to get excited that the Father is sending His Son, the Groom, to redeem the Bride. In union. And so, what I'm about to tell you, I am telling you, I did not make this up. I am a student of history. I take history seriously. I take sources seriously. If someone just comes up with some kind of weird idea, I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, this is fact, okay? 
So if this is the first time you've heard some of this stuff, you're gonna be like, holy cow, you can check me. I'm telling you, this is historically correct. Because you hear it and you're like, how can this be? I think when, you, when I hear some of this stuff. And it's really, for us to understand this bridal paradigm, like whatever, like what? Like I get an engagement ring and like, you know, get like a, a big venue and hire a band, you know? Like 21st century wedding, it's like, what's up with that? We need to go back to the times of the New Testament and say, all right, what the heck did a wedding look like? Or what did this wedding and bridal paradigm really look like? Because Jesus is talking to a first century people and he's making all these connections and it blows your mind away, I think. So this is what would go down. In the New Testament, in the area of Judea, this is how you get married to someone. The father, not the son, the father searches for a bride for his son. And then has to pay a bridal pot price, like a dowry, but for the male. So the father has to look for the bride, not the son. The father is responsible to find out who is worthy to be a bride for my son. And by the way, not only are they worthy, I'm going to pay the price for the bride herself. Come on. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Let's get some context here. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay? So what we have here is your soul has been purchased. Just like the father in a New Testament wedding ceremony would have to purchase the price of the bride. Now, ours is not with money and not with grain. Ours is with the most precious commodity on planet Earth. The blood of the groom. The blood of the groom is being used to pay for the bridal price. I mean, with that commodity, with that currency, hell has been defeated. With that commodity, with that resource, depression's got to go. This is not like, hey, I'm going to buy an engagement ring. This is the most precious thing in the history of the cosmos of the world. Now, what would then happen is this. The father, the son, and the bride, before even getting married, would establish a marriage contract. Okay? So I was going to bring a copy of mine in, but like I was, it was too early. I got my bag. I'm like, you know what? They're just going to have to deal with it. Uh, it's called a ketubah, which in Hebrew means like that which is written. And so uh, when Michelle and I were getting married, we, we signed this, this ketubah, this symbolic thing. And it just pretty much what it is, is it lays out the, the vows. Okay? It lays out the vows, and you sign it before man, woman, and God, saying this is the contract that we have. Right? And you do that. Now, I, 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 the reason why I wanted to do that is because I, it's such a powerful representation of the contract of marriage, the covenant that God has made with his bride. Notice, this is before you get married. The contract is signed. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What we have here is his contract with us. 
is a covenant that he sealed and made with his blood. It's, it's, it's the New Testament. It's Jeremiah 31. It's, it is the contract that we have with him. This is not like, you know, hey, this is what I just kind of think about you. This is a legal binding contract that he has with mankind. And it's all, symbol, it's all obviously a symbol uh, that he was taking from that time. Is this cool stuff or what? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard of this stuff before. Here's the third thing. The son, now, after signing the ketubah, after signing the contract, they're not married yet. This is just like, hey, we're going to get married. The son returns to his father's house and prepares living accommodations for he and his bride. He's like, I got to go back to my dad's farm or my dad's house. I'm going to put an addition on the house because we're just starting out, right? We don't have the money to have our own house. So we're going to live with my dad, but we don't want to like live in the same like living space. So we're going to build off the side of the house. I'm going to go do that and get ready to come back to get my bride. Come on, John 14, 2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Come on, this is, this is the groom saying, I'm going to my dad's house and I'm building a room because you're my bride. Next thing that would happen. The bride now has something to do. So the groom has something to do. The groom has to get ready. The groom has to build a room. But the bride isn't just like, oh, I'm just going to chill out. The bride has something to do as well. The bride prepares herself through ritual cleansing while waiting for the groom's return. This is crazy. In the times of the New Testament, if you're a bride and you're entering into a contract with the groom, you have no idea when that room is going to be ready. You are waiting in expectation every day. Is this the day my groom comes to get me? And you don't have like, oh, well, we, we got the banquet hall June 15th, so that's when the, the invitations have to go out. No. You are going through your day, cleansing yourself, getting ready, and whenever the groom comes, he comes. You don't know the day or the hour. He just shows up and gets you. 1 Corinthians 3, 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed or purified, cleansed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What we have here is that something that I think many of us have a tendency to forget, that as a bride of the Lord, we are in a period of cleansing and of purification, and of sanctification. Like he bought you. You're saved, man. But it says that we are to be transformed by glory to glory until we see Christ Jesus. We are to be transformed and purified until we come in contact with the groom. It's not like once saved, only saved, and now I just do whatever the heck I want. It's no. There is a transformation. There is a daily cleansing that is taking place. This is the one that just blows me away, right? At a time determined by the Father, not the Son. Like, the Father's like, all right, Son, good job. You got the room ready. Good job. Yeah, and then you got to spack a little bit more. I don't know if she's going to like the carpet you put in here. I think we have to talk to Mom, right? They're thinking, all right. Then now, finally, the Father's like, Son, it's ready. Good job. Go get her. 
And so at a time determined by the father, not the son, uh, the son will now go to retrieve his bride at a time when the bride does not know. But of that day and hour, Matthew 24, 36, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Last little bit here for this. Brings the bride, the son brings the bride to his father's house to consummate the marriage and to have a wedding feast. There is some stuff with that, but it's a, it's a little bit more like PG-13 rated R about consummation and blood and stuff I don't want to get into. But there's a, another level of powerful meaning. All right, I'll just get into it. How do you know if someone uh, was officially married? Like, there wasn't like a, a rabbi or priest that was like, all right, say your vows. This is the way it worked, man. You took your bride after coming to the contract. You take her into the tent. Or you take her into the house. You do your marriage relations. Your best friend will be standing outside of the room. That's where the, the best man comes from. You would now present, essentially, the bridal rags to see if she was a virgin and if there's blood on the cloth. There's blood on the cloth. She was a virgin. Everything's good. Solid. You're married now. What was the sign of the marriage? Of the consummation? Blood. Right? It's the notion of the covenant of blood that he has given. There's a consummation that happens because of his, because of his blood. That's the proof. Sorry if that was a little too much for some of you, but it looked like we were all adults here. So. Brings the bride to his father's house to consummate the, the marriage and have a wedding feast. Uh, Revelation 19, 6 to 9, which we just read, read or just paraphrased a little, little bit. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage feast or supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So, if you're like, ah, I don't know about this marriage thing, hopefully now you're like, okay, yeah, pretty clear, right? Yeah? Like, this is a marriage that we're talking about. And I'll find, you know, what do, what do we do with this? I get it. Look, to, this whole sermon series is about rediscovering the Father. To rediscover the understanding of the Father, essentially what you have to do is you need to rediscover this marriage paradigm. And you have to adopt it and you have to bring it back into your walk again. There are plenty of sons and daughters here of the Most High God. There's plenty of disciples and a couple bond servants, right? Uh, but uh, a bride. If you ever meditate on the concept of being a bride for the Lord, um, it's time to. So if you've learned about all these different things in this church in the last couple of years, I mean, we've learned about being sons and daughters and children of God and how that's going to set you free. We recently learned about what it means to be a bondservant or a slave of Christ. We, we've discussed what it was really like to be a first century Talmudim or a first century disciple. What was that really like? But I'm telling you that from the garden, the Father uh, has been looking to restore relationship through intimacy. That, that's what's been going on since the garden. We've broken the intimacy with him. And since the garden, he's been looking to restore this relationship through intimacy. But unfortunately, like Gomer, mankind has uh, looked to others. And so to fully understand this paradigm, we need to look at this bridegroom and his love for his bride. As I said, Hosea, God, or he saves. Yeshua, God, is salvation. But with Jesus, with Yeshua, it's really the notion that the bridegroom has come to 
save through intimacy of relationship. And I think that intimacy in relationship is where things have gotten messed up recently. What God is saying, just like he was saying, Isaiah, I'm here, return to me. I want relationship and I want intimacy with you. But there are some hang-ups. There are hang-ups, man. There, there are difficulties. I'm just going to be real with you, right? Look, if we look around the church at large, anywhere in any country, you're going to see that about 60 to 70% of the churchgoers are female. And I did a lesson on that a long time ago about like, what, what do we have to do as churches to, to make this message more enticing to the male. It's a real problem. It's not like, oh, it's just what it is, what it is. No, it's a major, major problem. It's a major, major problem. Because uh, fathers are leaders of the home, right? And priests of the home. And, and you've got an issue when that's not happening. So what we have here is this. You know, women usually understand this flowery language of romance, right? Like, oh, I'm a bride of Christ, <laughs> right? They get it. They get the language. They get the flutter. They get all this kind of stuff. And us guys are like, what, what the heck? Whatever. All right. Yeah, I'm a bride. But here's the thing. Uh, some women don't fully get it. They can't really step in. And I'll tell you why they can't step in. A lot, there's, I've, I've seen a decent amount of women who cannot fully step into the paradigm of what it means to be a bride to a bridegroom uh, because some have had their hearts bruised by romance and then cannot fully step into this understanding of the, of the wedding feast. Uh, they're still holding on. They still don't want their heart to be hurt. All right? They've been divorced. They've been neglected. Their daddy didn't like them. Their daddy abused them. The first husband ran off, did this, that, and the other thing. And I'm not saying like you are destined to now destruction. You just really need to be aware of that. And you need to restore what it really means to be the bride of a lover who really, really cherishes you. And, and, you know, it's obviously very sensitive stuff, but I'm telling you, these physical things impact our spiritual, right? I mean, anyone that's been around a little bit knows what I'm talking about. Now, look, men, we really got a problem. Look, so I just, it was real easy on the females. Like, men, we are totally jacked up. What do you mean, why? It's difficult. I'm a bride? Come on. Yes, you are a bride. But not with kisses and with marital relations. But really what's going on here is the bridegroom, gr bridegroom or groom-bride really paradigm is a symbol of intimacy. Like Jesus is not coming back to have marital relations with you. Right? He's not coming back to kiss you. I know some of our worship songs are like all this kind of weird stuff. But that's what keeps men out from Christianity. Like what is going on? No, you're not going to make out with Jesus. You're not. Okay? You're not. That's, that's perversion. Right? You're not, you're not going to make out with the living God. It's a symbol, okay? It's a symbol of intimacy. But many men have a problem with intimacy. I'm not going to ask for a showing of hands because it's probably going to be a majority of the men that raise their hands. Men have a significant problem with intimacy. And that is because we have been conditioned by our culture to see intimacy as weak. Now, you ladies may be like, what are they, what is he talking about? I'm telling every guy, you take them like one-on-one -on -one and we talk, you know, they're going to be like, yep, intimacy is weak. Why is it weak? Because intimacy is surrender. 
Come on, you want your man, you want your groom to surrender to things? You want to be a mighty warrior that takes care of you, right? Look, here's the thing, man. Our relationship with the Father is an issue of surrender. I surrender all. Surrender is intimacy, and men are conditioned not to surrender because surrender is weakness. And if surrender is weakness, that means intimacy is weak. And you have no intimacy with your groom in a symbolic way. And it's very, very important because the heavenly bridegroom is looking for intimacy in relationship. And there are a lot of cultural problems that are going on here that we need to get into. I hope I'm holding your attention. This is a little far out stuff. A couple weeks ago, I, uh, I was teaching on this notion of sacred ecology. Uh, I, I don't do this often, but I'm telling you, if you're under the age of 40, you need to hear that message. I don't think I've ever said that because it's very awkward, right? Like you have, I'm telling you, if you're under the age of 40, you need to go back and listen to the concept of how technology is impacting how we view and interact with the holy. Okay? And so for those of you that are around and you remember that, it's, it's a little bit of this. It's, it's essentially, it's connected to the sacred ecology. Like what is holy? How do we interact with what is holy? And essentially what we do here is with the technology, everything is public. So then therefore nothing is private and then therefore nothing has the understanding of being holy and set apart. But really what's going on here with all the technologies and modern day life is this. Our culture has removed relationship from intimacy. Like everything is, is, is you know, essentially the public space, right? You, you share all of the images and you share all of the stuff. It's, nothing is private anymore. And, and it goes much deeper than this. We live in an image-centric society. What I mean by this is with our invention, the image, that which is drawn, that which is taken a picture of, is the center of our life. It's, it's all through the apps, it's all through the social media, it's all through the TV, it's through all of those things. Guys, on average, on average, this is not max, on average, the typical American spends eight hours a day before a screen. If you spend eight hours before a screen, you spend eight hours before an image. And don't tell me that's not going to impact how you are getting wired. If you spend eight hours before an image, right? And if you look in front of the mirror at home and you gotta look a certain way, or you gotta take a certain selfie to post it on, on the world so everyone can see it, it's a byproduct of living in a society that has uplifted the image. But what's so convenient and so powerful by the Holy Ghost is you are to have no engraven images of the Lord thy God, but also of anything that is on earth or above earth or below the earth. Why? Because you, when you uplift the image, you uplift the self. You uplift the flesh. Come on, you get a picture taken. What's the first thing you think when you see the picture? How do I? How do I look? Who cares? My ego. You're supposed to lay down your life at the foot of the cross. You shouldn't be caring what you look like on the stinking photo. But we, have, but we spend eight hours a day in front of the image. You get what I'm saying? Look, images, this is the problem with it. Images are only a snapshot. That's all they are, it's a snapshot. 
It has been said a picture is worth a thousand words. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? You've heard that before, right? I'm here to tell you this, but one word can encompass depth of meaning. We have forsaken the word. We've uplifted the image. If an image can give us a thousand, I'm sorry, if an image can give us a thousand words, what can one word give us? Words bring depth of meaning. They bring depth of understanding that you cannot get from a picture. Come on, you just listen to these words I'm just going to throw at you and think about like what kind of emotions and, and, and images in your own mind that it can invoke. Hate, passion, anger, love, grace, majesty, holiness, Redemption. I can't draw a picture, and I can't take a picture that can bring a depth of meaning to just one word, redemption. But if I meditate on redemption, I can spend eternity meditating on that one word. Because the word is a concept. A concept shows a depth of meaning. When society continually looks to the image, Society loses the depths of its meaning. Words lose their soul, and in return, man loses his depths of meaning and the understanding of his soul. An image-centric society creates intimacy without relationship. I can go on Facebook, I can go on Snapchat, I can go on TikTok, I can go on Instagram, I can go on all of it, and there's no intimacy there. There's really actually no relationship there either. There's a level of relationship, but it, there's no real intimate relationship. You're just thinking about basically how many friends do you have on your social media thing, right? So how many friends you have? Are they actually your friends? Well, they are friends. They're a new concept of friend. They're friends that are fake. They're friends that don't have the same depth of meaning. Now, maybe a dozen or two dozen are real deep, intimate friends. But the concept of the word friend is actually changing because of our image-centric society. The image actually changes the, nation, the notion of what a word means. They're not your friends. They're not your friends. Not the way that I viewed, anyone over 40 viewed what a friend is. They're acquaintances. It should say how many acquaintances do you have, not how many friends you have. So look at this. The image-centric society is actually creating a re-identification of what a word is. It's changing in the notion of what a friend is. And we're at the beginning stages of it, but it's there. So an image-centric society creates intimacy without the relationship. Uh, and this is the one that's going to upset some of you, but get over it. Intimacy without relationship is pornography. What's pornography? It's an image. It's an image that has intimacy, but there's no relationship in that intimacy. Um, this is why there has been a massive increase in pornography in the world and in the church. I won't tell you the stats of, of how many men in the church at large struggle with pornography. It's quite high. Now you're like, oh, well, why is this? You know, the husband and the man and the blah, blah, blah. He's just this. He's just that. Come on. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is this. Um, our culture has produced intimacy without relationship is produced it for mankind. And so it's now it's very, very palatable. It's very, very easy to get. 
And if a man struggles with the concept of intimacy, wow, if you struggle with the concept of intimacy, it's very easy to now be in some type of relationship with an image that bears no intimacy because you don't have to deal with the intimacy. You just deal with the relationship and what the relationship gives you. So the big question here is this, you know, you guys are a little shocked here that I would just use that phrase or that thing, but here's the big question. We're not talking about pornography on the internet. I'm talking about a a pornography of the spirit. Are you in a pornographic relationship with the Lord? And I'm using this symbolic. What I mean by that, are you in a relationship with the Lord that seeks out relationship and feels and not intimacy? What would it look like? It would look like this. You go to the Lord and you say, what can you give me? What pleasure can you bestow upon me, Lord? Answer this prayer, Lord. Let me feel this, Lord. Let me feel that, Lord. Let me get this little tingle. Let me get this little excitement. If your prayers and your relationship is built off of that, there's no intimacy. There's no intimacy of a bridegroom and a groom or bride. So if we live in an image-centric society that uplifts relationship without intimacy, it is so easy to now take that and bring it to your relationship with the Lord. Yes, he wants you to go to him and ask him things and cry out to him. Of course he does. Of course he does. That can't be the sole basis and rationale for the relationship. The relationship needs to bear intimacy. And fine, maybe you don't struggle with pornography. Good, awesome, great. But you live in an image-centric society that uplifts the image, which only tears down intimacy. It's very, very important, very, very powerful. Does that make sense or no? I'm getting like this weird like, okay. I don't know if this is like too heavy. Now, when you go to the Lord and you're just looking for this relationship without intimacy, just give me, give me, give me. Essentially what happens here is the, the goal, the goal of the real relationship is, is vanquished, right? The goal of intimacy is, is, is vanquished. And so, you know, we can have this type of intimacy with the Lord without developing the relationship. And it's like, what can you give me, right? Uh, and so I wanted to just change the slide so we wouldn't have that up on the slide for the next 10 minutes. I'm sure we could all appreciate that. Okay. All right. Here's yet another problem. The third problem is this. Uh, relationship is designed to bear responsibility. And so, Dana, can you come on up to the piano? Yeah. So, the first problem is this notion of uh, sacred ecology, okay? Um, and it's this notion where uh, our culture has removed relationship from the idea of intimacy. The second problem is this is all happening because we live in a very image-centric society. And the third problem here is this. Relationships are supposed to be designed to bear responsibility. This is where the bridal paradigm is really stepping in again. Intimacy without relationship is when there is no responsibility. That's the definition. So you could be intimate with an image, pornographic or not, or God or not. You could be intimate with it, but if it bears no responsibility, it's, there's, 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 nothing. there's nothing there. Right? This is the concept of being wed to someone. When you engage in the marital act, there's a responsibility that is there. And the responsibilities are manifold, but one of the responsibilities of, of being wed to not an image, but to a being in the flesh is the responsibility of family, right? 
and family will come forth from life, right? But when one engages with just the image, we have a notion where there is no responsibility. And if there's no responsibility, then the intimacy is not in the relationship. And who does not bear responsibility? Who doesn't bear responsibility in the world? Children. Children do not bear responsibility. Or very, very limited responsibility. If you think about it this way, a child lives a carefree life. Without much worry, you know what I mean? Um, they live in the moment and they, they don't bear the responsibility of, of things. And who bears responsibility? Well, the people that bear responsibilities are adults. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, right? Pretty famous section here. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What are childish things? Not bearing responsibility. And we have an entire generation of generation of people who do not bear responsibility anymore. And here we try to bring it all together. To be a bride, you need to be the age of an adult. Now, maybe I should say here, you really need to be the age of a spiritual grown-up, like your spiritual man, right? It gets molded into adulthood. I've met plenty of four-year-olds who are not adult in the spirit. And I've met plenty of eight-year-olds that are adults in the spirit. So it's not a matter of your actual birth age. It's a matter of what's going on in your soul. But here's the thing. In order to be a bride and to be made ready, you have to be of, of the age that allows you to be married. It's an age in the spirit. A bride must be an adult an adult bears responsibility. So the bride assists the, in bearing the responsibility of her groom. The responsibility is born out of the relationship found in intimacy. And so we need to get ready for the groom. We need to be ready in intimacy of relationship and bearing responsibility. There's plenty of people in the church who are saved, but they do not bear responsibility yet. As I said, the father is sending the groom for the bride, so it's time to get ready. She is to be made ready, bearing the responsibility of the gospel. Not loving another, but with eyes only for the beloved. Like Hosea and Gomer, the groom remains in covenant, arms wide open to receive you, despite any harlotry. But it's time to remove the distraction from Gomer's eyes. And it is time to restore relationship and intimacy and to restore responsibility in a hyper-image-driven society. And so really closing up this, there is a warning. Oh, there's a warning, man. By the groom himself, Matthew 25, and we'll be closing up in just a moment. You got your word, you should read this. It might have been a while since you read this. Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. 
But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. The element of restoring these relationships, and the relationship is intimacy, is found in this oil. The oil in Scripture represents the anointing. It represents the Holy Spirit. And in this parable, there are those who are virgins, those who are essentially uh, brides. But they lost out on it. They were destined to be a bride, but they lost out on it because they weren't ready. They weren't tending to the oil. They weren't attending to the Spirit, to the anointing. And so today, when we walk out of this place, we need to take the oil of the Holy Spirit with us. The intimacy of relationship empowered by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Why don't we rise? Father, I pray right now against, against a spirit and a society that removes intimacy from relationship. Lord, we've come to a place that we just, we view one another as economic commodities. What can you do for me? And then what can I do for you? Father, I pray right now that that type of thinking would not be sent to the heavenly place, Lord. But that we would view you not just as a businessman that can give me something. But Lord, that we can view you as a being, as a bridegroom to be cherished and loved in intimacy. Father, I pray against that image-centric society that just says, let's lift up the image, but bear no responsibility. Father, I pray for a people and a church, a church of virgins that tend to the oil. Let's say we're going to, we're going to press into the things of the Spirit. Lord, that we're a bride that say, I want to get ready, for no one knows the day or the hour, but I want to get ready to be in intimacy with the bridegroom. Father, I pray, I pray against the distractions. I pray, about, I pray against the things of men. I pray against the things of the spirit of the day that takes our eyes away from the beloved. Father, I pray against the bruises of our hearts. The bruises that say, I can no longer understand what it's like to be a bride because I've been bruised in romance. Father, I pray against the spirit that falls upon men that say, I don't want intimacy because intimacy is surrender and I have to show my true cards to my beloved. I have to show my fears and my anxieties and my worries to my wife. But Lord, that's the type of relationship you want with us. One who is undone before you. One who says, I surrender it all to you. I'm a blank page, Lord, an open book. Come and teach me how to be like you. But Lord, let it be done. An intimacy of relationship.
There's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a wedding. You see, he's gone to prepare a room for us. And no one knows the day nor the hour. Not even the son, not even the groom, only the father. And in a twinkling of an eye, he'll be here. We want to be made ready. We want to be made ready, Lord. Strip us those things of the world. Dana is just going to close us out in worship. If you need to get going, I, I totally get it. Feel free. Um, we're going to have, obviously, some refreshments downstairs, as we always do. But I, I really want to have a, a time, a time for, for those people to repent from being a part of the image-centric society. One where there's no intimacy in relationship. If, if you're having your heart pulled on this, I, I just invite you to come on down. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you to be released from viewing your father as a pornographic image. Someone, something that just gives you temporary pleasure. But that there will be a restoration of relationship, of intimacy, and responsibility. Because that's what brides do. Have a wonderful week. Feel free to stay in his presence here. And please, let's just keep our conversations low. I'm I'm believing that there are going to be people who just need a touch from the Lord on this topic. Have a wonderful week.